Please remain standing and pray with me. Almighty Father, we come before you this morning in awe of um, your word read to us, of your good deeds done uh, for us and before us, and we are deeply grateful that you reign over us and over all of heaven and earth as our loving and triumphant King. And so we come before you today to be shaped more and more into the image of your Son, and so that we may come from this place and unveil Jesus to the world. And so meet us here this morning, I pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. may be seated. Well, good morning. Well, I hope you're ready for it, because we are going to take a quick dip, a quick dip, in a very deep pool. Uh, That is the book of Revelation. Not Revelations, but Revelation. So we're going to dive into this book this seventh Sunday of Easter. And so if you have a Bible or you want to grab one of the pew Bibles in front of you, I invite you to turn with me there. I'll be referencing various verses from what, were, from what was read just a moment ago. Now verses 6 through 21 of chapter 22 is the concluding statement, the epilogue of the entire book of Revelation. And it gives for us the main theme, right? It gives for us the main theme for the book. It's kind of a summarization of it all. And this is giving us the main takeaway as well. In this book. And as we look at its epilogue, the drama of Revelation is all but over. Jesus unveils himself to John and dictates through various means messages to the seven churches of Asia. A crisis, a crisis is coming, and the churches of Asia, set between Rome and Jerusalem, will feel the walls crushing in on them from both sides. Churches need to be ready. And Jesus sends these love letters at the beginning and indeed the entire book because the book ends in epistolary form with a benediction. And so Jesus sends these love letters to stir these churches to zeal and faithful allegiance in a time where there is intense pressure. And listen, and listen to this, Christ Church. This is so important for us because we are living in a similar moment, our own moment of pressure and crisis. We are living in a similar moment where a crisis is coming and in some sense is already here and we will feel pressure just as those churches did to betray our allegiance to King Jesus. This is something, by the way, that every church feels in every age and that's why the book of Revelation is in the scriptures because it is always applicable to the body of Christ. And if Jesus' letters to these churches recorded in chapters 2 through 3 tell us anything, they reveal that this pressure to be disloyal to Jesus comes in a variety of forms, a variety of means, from the alluring self-reliance of wealth to overt persecution, from the festering rot of false teaching to a numbing apathy. You have left your first love. I'm not being hyperbolic or exaggerating when I say this. We likewise, we likewise need to be ready. And so we must listen to Revelation as Jesus' love letter, not only to those seven churches in Asia, but to us, to Christ's church, to the church in the 21st century in the West. And we need to allow him to prepare and to stir our hearts, to stir zeal and faithful loyalty to him, within us, individually, within our families, and within this community. 
So before we jump into this epilogue, I think what we need to do is I need to give us a, an overview statement of the main theme for the book of Revelation. This will kind of give us a flotation device. Uh, if you've ever read through Revelation or heard teaching through Revelation, you know it's kind of this dizzying array of images and it seems so otherworldly and it's hard to get like a handle on just what's the main idea, what's the big point of it all. And so I want to give that to us before we look at the epilogue or just a portion of the epilogue this morning. And here's, here's the summary of Revelation's central theme. Revelation is about the unveiling of Jesus, the unveiling of Jesus in his bride, the church. It's about the glorification of the Son by the formation of a bride who suffers with him and then robed in glory and light takes the throne at his right hand. That's what Revelation's about, the unveiling of Jesus through the church. And notice there that the church takes on the same narrative arc or trajectory of Jesus' own life, right? which we see most clearly in a text like Ephesians or Philippians chapter 2, that he, being in the form of God, did not consider that something to be exploited for his own advantage, but humbled himself, lowly, become human, and not only that, even further, to suffer a cursed death on the cross. So he suffered, and then God has now highly exalted him. The church, likewise, as we see in Revelation, is Christ's bride who suffers with him and then is at the end exalted, as Christ is exalted. This central theme reaches its culmination in two parts, and these are provided for us in chapter 21 and chapter 22. First, in 21, 21 verse 5, its culmination is announced. The culmination of everything that, that we are looking at in the book of Revelation is announced there in verse 5 of chapter 21 when the voice from the throne says, Behold, listen up, I am making all things new. I am making all things new. And the second, we see in, verses, in chapter 21, verse 9 through chapter 22, verse 5, and we see that it's the culmination when the culmination is achieved. And this is achieved when Jesus' bride, the church, is unveiled in the image of the great city, the holy city, the new Jerusalem descending from heaven onto earth. And this is what Revelation 22 verse 6 is referring to when it says, And he, the angel, said to me, These words, these words are trustworthy and true. Trustworthy or faithful and true. The faithful and true words here certainly refer in some larger sense to the entire book of Revelation. They may even go deeper back into the prophetic uh, record, back to Daniel and other texts in the Old Testament. But they most specifically refer here to this immediate context, this two-fold culmination of all of world history in the announcement of the new creation coming and, and in this descent of the bride of the Lamb, the wife of the Lamb from heaven to earth. And so we need to hear it in reference to this. This is the immediate context for the epilogue. And then notice, this is so important, notice John's response, how he responds in verses 8 and 9 to this vision of new creation and the unveiling of the church as the bride of Christ in glory. He says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. Don't do that. 
I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Those two words are a resounding summary of the practical significance and takeaway of the entire book of Revelation. We don't know what to do with this book, and we've heard so many butcherings of it. What do we take away from it? Not a vision to see all these things and like, with the helicopters. Thing. No, worship God. That's the takeaway from Revelation. Not just some over-concerned about future events, but right now in the present to see that Jesus Christ is alive, living, and ascended king over heaven and earth. We're to see these visions of what he will accomplish, what he has already accomplished, what he'll bring to fruition when he returns. We're to see these and fall down on our faces before God and worship. Worship God. These two words give us the key to the entire book and to the practical outworking of its theme in our lives. Remember that Revelation is about the unveiling of Jesus, the unveiling of Jesus, right? That's what apocalypse means, a revelation, unveiling. Okay, the book is about the unveiling, the revelation of Jesus in his bride, the church. It's about the glorification of the son by the formation of a bride who suffers with him and is then robed in glory and light and takes her place at his right hand. Worship then. If the angel commands John to do in the correct manner, worship then is the means by which the church unveils Jesus, reveals Jesus, the suffering lamb as the triumphant king of heaven and earth. In worship, saints... You and I, we draw near to the throne of God that's described there in Revelation chapter 22. We draw near to that throne, and that throne for us is the source of living waters. 22 verse 1, 22 verse 17. And we receive there the fruit of the tree of life. 22 verse 2 and verse 14. In worship, and what we're doing here this morning, right here this morning, we eat and drink life itself. Life incarnate in the Son, communicated by the Spirit of God. We are participating in something that I don't think we rarely quite grasp what we're doing and what God is doing in our midst. He's making us, shaping us, fashioning us, to be the bride of his son. And he has given us these advanced gifts, these good gifts to sustain us as we wait for our bridegroom to come and claim us as his own. And so we respond in this way to reveal him through worship. We ingest, we ingest Jesus in worship. Jesus, the word of God. Jesus, the bread of life. Jesus, the cup of salvation. We ingest Jesus when we receive him here in word, what we're doing right now, the scriptures read and preached, and sacrament. We ingest Jesus. And if we are to be loyal and true witnesses like Jesus was of God, who sent him, is what we heard read in, the, in our gospel reading, we must be conformed to Jesus, the great witness, through faithful through faithful ingestion of word and sacrament together, not individually, but together, 
week after week and year after year. This is how we'll be shaped into a bride who unveils, who reveals Jesus. Furthermore, it just, it just keeps getting, I think, better, right? Furthermore, our witness in this life to Jesus, our day-to-day un- unveiling or revealing of him in our words and actions is to be in itself a form of worship, a verbal and visible confession to the powers and principalities that indeed Jesus Christ has won. And he's won because that power of the resurrection is at work in our life to transform us into people who love God and love one another. It takes crappy husbands and makes them into loving husbands. It takes horrible wives and makes them into loving wives. It takes bad children and makes them a little bit better. (laughs) Just a little bit. We long for the culmination of the world. (laughs) But that's what the gospel does to us. That's what worship does to us when we ingest Jesus. It transforms us into the beautiful bride of the Lamb. And as that beautiful bride, we unveil Jesus by worshiping the triune God when we are gathered here and when we are outside of these walls in our life, living out the way of the cross, the way of love and self-sacrifice. This also means, though, that the converse is true of this claim, and it's equally important. We unveil Jesus also by not worshiping. By not worshiping, by firmly refusing to worship anything or anyone but God alone. We will not worship anything or anyone but the triune God. That is what it means to worship God. It's twofold. It's worship and not worshiping. Right? It's worship God. Don't worship his revealing creatures, such as creation or an angel or a human or yourself. Therefore, worship God entails both silence, not worshiping, and praise, the true worship of God in the gathered community and in a life of self-sacrifice. As a result, we must keep close watch over ourselves so that we do not give voice or assent to the lies of the false idols of our cultural moment, which is exactly what those churches in Asia Minor were struggling with, the various idols and lies that confronted them in their time and place. And for us, so many of these lies revolve around what it means to be human because in our age, the chief idol that we must not worship is ourselves and our fallen, twisted, and deviated desires about who we are. Now, this idolatry for us is expressed expressed so often in lies concerning our biological sex and our sexuality, but also concerning other expressions such as our Rampant and lustful materialism. We don't need to go into the examples. I think we know those to some extent. Now, all of these things in their own way appear also in Revelation chapters 2 and 3 as lies and idols that were testing the loyalty of those churches. Not much, not much has changed. The toolbox of the world, the flesh, and the devil remains the same. It just gets dressed up in different ways. But they were struggling with all the same things we're struggling with, tempting them to be disloyal to the true king. And at the heart of this worship, at the heart of this worship of God and silence and praise, 
is something that is, we, have to, we have to see here in its epilogue, and we have to engage and pursue in our lives. The heart of this worship is an active obedience. An active obedience. The blessings pronounced in verse 7 and verse 14 clearly present the active obedience that is so important to true worship. Look with those if you have your Bible open with me. Verse 7, blessed, blessed is the one who keeps, that is, who obeys, cherishes, and does the words of the prophecy of this book. Verse 14, and blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the, the right, the claim, the ownership to the tree of life, and that they may enter the city by the gates. We don't have to sneak in. Like, we have access. Like, we, you know, we're known and we're allowed to enter. Active obedience, the obedience of faith, is nurtured and formed within us through the gathered worship of the church that feasts upon Jesus in word and sacrament. The Christian life is remarkably just very cyclical. We gather for worship, to feast upon the word and sacrament, to be shaped into the image of Christ, to go back out into the world, to unveil Jesus. And when we come back with our problems and our sins, we receive the free grace of God to renew us and rejuvenate us and nourish us again to do it all over again, to unveil Jesus week in and week out. The church's gathered worship in word and sacrament is the schoolhouse of love where we become lovers of God and one another who are conformed to the chief lover, that is, to Jesus. And that's why every Sunday, at the beginning of our liturgy, we claim, what are the two greatest commandments? Love God and love neighbor. The, what, what we are doing here, among other things, but one of the chief things we're doing here when we gather together is allow God, allow God to shape us into lovers of himself and to lovers of one another. By gazing and ingesting the chief lover, Jesus, who loved God perfectly and loved us without reservation, with a perfect love. This is how we become the life of the world in worship. This is how we become Jesus in our world. And so at the conclusion of this worship service, as we always do, we are sent out into the world as these lovers of God and our neighbors to spread abroad the love and life of Jesus through our words and our deeds by proclaiming in word and action Jesus, unveiling Jesus, the triumphant king to our world. And this love of God and our neighbors in the world takes particular form and in and through the explicit, implicit commands found throughout Revelation. Remember, blessed, blessed are those who keep, who obey the words of this prophecy. Well, what are some of those words? I'm not going to go through them all because that, that would be quite a list. But chapters 2 and 3 again provide for us some, some helpful ways to understand how Jesus in his revelation understands what it means to love God and love others. Test the apostles to see if they are false. Or we could say prophets and priests and teachers test us to see if we are false or true. That's an act of love. Do not tolerate evil men or women. Finish the works you start. Do not leave your first love. Do not tolerate the prophetess Jezebel. Hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Remember what you have received and heard. Buy from God his gold of true wealth. Buy from him white robes to clothe your shame and buy from him salve to anoint your eyes. 
Those are just a few things in Revelation that it says to do. And so when we say, blessed are those who keep the words of this prophecy, this fills out for us, in part, what it means to love God and love others. It's a robust love. It's a varied love that meets a robust world and a crazy world with the appropriate responses of love given the context and the circumstances. Only those, as we're reminded over and over again, only those who do what is written in the book will share in the blessings of the new creation. Only those who do what is written in the book will share in the blessings of the new creation. Revelation demands obedience, a worshipful obedience. An active and loyal obedience to Jesus, not merely some mental or moral assent. Revelation demands worship. And you might be asking, how can this possibly be? How can it be? Who can do that? Who can, who can do the words and keep the words of this prophecy? We all fall short. We all fail in some way. We all have shortcomings. We all have besetting sins. And the answer to that is praise be to God that there is a second blessing here in this epilogue. Verse 14. And blessed are those who wash their robes, wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. God makes his effectual grace available to you. God makes his effectual grace available to you. The same grace that he offers to you Sunday after Sunday to transform you into the image of his son, Jesus. This blessedness is not the result of a perfect moral record, nor is it available as a result of merely human moral effort. It belongs to those who turn from evil to God and receive cleansing, uh, receive a cleansing and grace from the sacrifice of Jesus Christ through baptism and ongoing repentance. As John declares in his first letter, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Once washed in baptism, we are called to wash ourselves continually by faith in repentance and confession. God's power in baptism is not confined to the moment of baptism. This one washing by God's grace and through faith and repentance cleanses us throughout our lives. This is why we're not baptized over and over and over and over again after we sin. Because that work of God is present to us and we have access to it throughout our life when we confess and repent. He cleanses us. He cleanses us. He makes us a worthy bride of his son. We have access to his effectual grace. Anyone who is washed in baptism and continually washes his or her sins by faith and repentance and confession is welcome to receive the sustaining grace of God given to us from the tree of life. That's why we come in our service. I love how our service structures, maps on so well to the book of Revelation. We are then welcomed to the table after confession. 
we have received the grace of God and and when we hear his forgiveness in the absolution and we are welcomed again as redeemed and forgiven sinners to receive from his table the fruit of the tree of life. The fruit of the kingdom that is coming into this world. All who so wash themselves in their robes, that is their works and their deeds, by God's grace enter into right here in some proleptic way a renewed Eden. We enter into a renewed Eden and we have a right to claim the fruit from the tree of life. All who so wash themselves are by God's grace citizens of that city that descends from heaven to earth, the church. Free citizens under the reign of a loving king. And ever since the descent of the Spirit at Pentecost, which we will celebrate and commemorate next Sunday, ever since that day, folks from the kingdom of darkness are being baptized into communities that gather around the table of the Lord's coming kingdom to feast on the fruits of God's kingdom, the living tree of life, the righteous man, the righteous man who offers himself in the Spirit as our food through his self-sacrificial death on the cross. I know this is a lot. I know it's heavy. And I, I, there is one of those light things here that's spin around to let you, to give you a warning. And it'll be a little too late to do that now. <laughs> but this is remarkable stuff. Here at the end of the book of Revelation, we are given the key to the Christian life. Worship God. Do not worship idols or follow after lies. Do not give your assent to lies. Worship God. And so Revelation clearly demands that our lives be marked by this worship so that through our worship we might unveil Jesus, reveal Jesus to the thirsty and hungry world around us, inviting them to come to receive through faith and repentance the water of life without price. To be cleansed in its life-giving torrent and to receive the fruit of eternal life from the tree of life, Jesus Christ himself. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.